We just keep adding more and more kids to the stage. Isn't that awesome? It's a whole lot better. Not that I don't like adults. I'm just saying kids are kids bring a special little bit of joy. Oh, yeah, kids, you are dismissed to Children's Church. Since my wife was yelling at me from the back with her quiet voice, which is oddly more scary than her loud voice. Uh, happy to uh, have the opportunity to preach and open up the Word this morning. Um, our text is going to be Acts chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking in verses 8, or verses 25 through 40. Um, before we get into that, there's a lot of context that I kind of want to set. Um, if you know the book of Acts, it's hard to just drop kind of right around the middle of it and just get a running start. There's a lot of things that kind of have to be... Um, contextually opened up a little bit. Um, but here in chapter 8, the temple of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 8 is kind of speeding up. Um, we saw um, at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falling upon the people. We see the church beginning in the book of Acts, the actual New Testament church starting, finding its beginnings in the book of Acts, consisting of only Jerusalem Jews. Um, very different than what we know of the church today, consisting of nearly every nation, and all different forms of people. Um, but in this time, it was early beginnings, it was consisting of only Jerusalem Jews. And at this point, there was also a barrier against Hellenistic or Greek-like Jews, along with non-Palestinian and non-Israeli Jews. Um, part of this was due to the diaspora, the scattering of Jews um, from Israel, and the scattering all over, and it kind of caused some dissension within the Jewish ranks. Um, if that makes any sense. There are people that would look at each other and say, yes, we are both Jews, but you left during a time, so we look down on you some. This barrier was lifted a bit at Pentecost as 8,000 people came to salvation through the preaching of the Word and the falling down of the Holy Spirit. Um, so we're starting to see early in Acts, um, believers coming to know who Christ is and the Holy Spirit beginning to be active. Um, in chapter 6, shows us that non-Israeli Jews, mainly widows, were not being taken care of. This is where we get to see one of the main characters in our text in chapter 8 of Philip. Um, he was an evangelist, and he was one of the men that the apostles, along with other leaders, um, kind of appointed to ensure that certain ministries were actually taking place. Um, because of this dissension, some of these the, the widows that were non-Israeli Jews were not really being taken care of. Um, and if you're familiar with Scripture, it's very important to the Lord that we take care of orphans and widows. And this was a ministry that was not really um, effectively being handled by the church. So Philip and other men were chosen to ensure this. And what's great about it is because the men in the church and these leaders and the apostles saw a need. They saw widows were not being taken care of. They appointed men. And because of that, Philip, along with others, were not only able to minister to the widows and to those families, but were then able to kind of penetrate this Hellenistic culture, enter into this world of people that were looked down upon by some, enter into this community, and the church was able to grow because of it. Um, so that's kind of a quick um, flip up through six or seven chapters. There's a ton of stuff in there. Um, probably the first five or six verses in Acts could take about a month. Um, and I feel like myself and Pastor Ben say this anytime we preach. We could spend all day just on one little thing. Um, but we're going to kind of keep moving a little bit. Um, flip over to um, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Uh, we're going to see a familiar character, though. Um, we don't know as much about him necessarily in this context as in the later one. We see this, the persecution by Saul. Again, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that there's persecution by Saul, which leads Philip and others scattering 
into different areas of the world. We see in verse 1 it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. This just comes on the heels of Stephen being stoned. And we see Saul openly um, accepting of this death. He was consenting unto his death. He really wanted Stephen to, to be stoned. He was completely complicit in this. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So chapter 8 opens up, giving us the context of this great persecution led by Saul, which causes Philip and other people in the church to be scattered all over, and it even gives us the regions of Judea and Samaria. Um, flip back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just quickly. We're going to be referencing and coming back to this verse um, a couple times, but Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is a promise of the Holy Spirit, and it says, But ye shall receive power, and that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So we see kind of almost this progression in this promise of being witnesses under the Spirit in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. So if we had a map, you'd kind of see this outworking of starting in Jerusalem and continuing to build out into all of these other regions, kind of a, a promise of the growth of the church. Um, and it's ironic from what we know of Saul, who later became Paul, that his vast persecution is one of the things which greatly led to the spread of the gospel. This individual who so greatly wanted to keep Christians down, to find and imprison and murder Christians, that his very um, desire to capture them ended up scattering them all over the place to then later share the gospel. And it's just kind of an incredible thing that God is using these evil intentions, just like we see in the story of Joseph, for his purpose and for his means. It's, I just love how it opens up that they're scattered all the way into Samaria. Um, Samaritans and Jews in this time did not necessarily get, a, get along very well. When we read the story of the Good Samaritan, um, unless we understand that they weren't really going to be best friends, this would be the way that I would explain it if I was in Michigan would be Michigan and Ohio State fans. Okay? Not good. I'm not sure what that is here. I don't think like CU and CSU have really big rivalries or anything. Um, but imagine... Patriots fans and Broncos fans. Does that help you guys a little bit? Okay, that's, I like Tom Brady, sorry. But think about this. They did not necessarily get along. So what we saw in verse 1 of, of Philip and these other people being scattered out and going to these other regions, Samaria was not welcoming uh, Philip and, other, and Christians with some welcome mat and so thankful that they were there. Um, and again, they weren't necessarily going to Samaria because they thought it was just the greatest place to be because they loved the people. They were going there simply because they were fleeing persecution. And even though they didn't like Samaritans, they didn't like Samaria, that was better than death or being captured. So they're going there. Um, and the tension was so bad that the Jews did not even evangelize to Samaria. Can you imagine the, uh, this idea that the Jews, who, who were supposed to be uh, God's missionaries to the world, right? They're supposed to, to share the truth of who God is with the world. That they viewed the Samaritans as someone that they didn't even view worth sharing the gospel with. They disliked them so much that they would not even consider going to evangelize them. The truth about salvation and eternity and sin and Jesus Christ and the God of Israel 
They disliked them so much that they were not even willing to go and share that with them. That is an incredible indictment on the heart of some of these people. And again, we can always use self-reflection and look at this and say, is there someone that I dislike so much I refuse to even share the gospel with them? Are there other people? Is there another nation that regardless of what they do, I say they're not even worth hearing the gospel because they are so far gone. This would have been the Samaritans. This would have been the Ethiopians, as we're going to see. This would be so many different places. Even Israel, you could look at and say, well, they should have been beyond saving as well. But again, God in his grace still saw it fit for some to be saved. Um, So again, continuing in that context, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. Again, they were unwilling to even evangelize them, but they at least had some connection um, because the Samaritans were, um, they kind of viewed them as, um, they, they had intermarried with pagans, so they were looked upon almost as half-breeds in a way. Um, the Jews very much looked down on them, and it was looked at as Jewish people intermarrying with these pagans, and they looked at them and said that they are not worth our time. They were viewed very poorly. We're going to see these, Ethi- as we look at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, we're going to see that even um, there's no connection with them. So even though Samaria and the Samaritans were viewed poorly. Ethiopians weren't even necessarily considered at this time because there's no historical connection. So this church in Acts that was born um, in the upper room of 120 people had begun to spread and knocking down these barriers again, starting in Jerusalem, moving out to the regions of Judea, moving out to Samaria. And this is where this, this final part of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the uttermost parts of the world, we're going to start to see that beginning to happen. We're going to see the gospel message reaching out past just one or two of these regions into the uttermost part of the earth. And anytime we talk about um, Ethiopia, this pretty much encompassed everything that was south of Egypt. It wasn't, we think of it kind of just as the country. Um, This would have encompassed Libya as well. Anything south of Egypt. So just kind of this whole massive region. So a lot of context there, a lot of detail. Um, Now we'll pick up in Acts chapter 8, verses 25 through 40 in our text. Verse 25, And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. The ministry of Philip had been successful. While some in Samaria had believed, um, they, they had received the gospel. And again, in verse 25, we see that he was preaching the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. So again, Philip reaching out past what many of his contemporaries would have done, going to Samaria for, for the per- fear of persecution, is going there and he is preaching the gospel to them. He's openly sharing the word with them. And it says that many had believed. Um, in verses 14 through 17, we see something that is incredible um, in this transitional time with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 through 17, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. So the apostles are here. They hear that people are believing. They hear that Samaria had received the word of God, and they call for Peter and John to come to them, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. And in verse 16, For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. So we see something that's interesting here, because anytime pretty much after this, 
when a person comes to a point of salvation and belief in Jesus Christ and have been baptized, we, we have this idea of the Holy Spirit falling upon us at salvation. And that is not incorrect. It's, it's important because in this time, and this is why um, we reference here with verse 16, this was a time when the Holy Spirit was kind of a new concept to a lot of people here. We see a lot of things going on. There was a lot of false teaching going on. So we see here that Peter and John were sent to Samaria at this time to basically affirm or authenticate what it is that was actually going on. They were sent there to affirm that the Holy Spirit that fell on Samaria was the same that fell upon them at the day of Pentecost. So think of it this way. They're kind of, they go and they go to verify because with all the false teaching, and again, Samaria wasn't necessarily looked upon very favorably. So you can imagine if people in Samaria um, without any apostles, any apostolic authority going on, are saying, well, yeah, we've received the Holy Spirit, we've received the Lord, but there's no true apostle there to affirm it at this time, it would have been void. Um, so the apostles are sent, Peter and John specifically, are sent there to basically attest to the fact that, that the Samaritans have come to this belief, and then they send the Holy Spirit. Um, this is also within the story where a man named Simon sees that this happens. He sees that Peter and John pray and the Holy Spirit falls on them and he tries to offer them money so that he can do the same thing. He says, hey, that was really cool. How much can I pay you so that I can pray and send the Holy Ghost on people too? Um, and he's chastised for that and is called to repent. But um, in the study, it's just an interesting look to, to see how, how the Holy Spirit worked a little bit differently just within this transitional time. Um, but again, Peter and John are sent to attest that it's the same spirit. Um, continuing down with verse 26, this is when we get to this story. It's familiar for some of you, um, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and his baptism. Verse 26, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, this sounds somewhat familiar, just this idea of, of, of an angel and the Lord coming to someone and saying, get up and go. We see this with Abraham. Um, we see Abraham, what is it that he does? He just gets up and goes. He doesn't necessarily know why, doesn't always know for how long, but we see Abraham getting up and going. We see this now, the angel of the Lord coming and speaking to Philip and saying to go, and we're going to see him get up and go. He doesn't negotiate. Um, just imagine if an angel of the Lord comes to you um, while you're sleeping tonight or in the morning, comes to you and says, hey, get up, go to I-70 and just start walking east. And that's all you know. Are you going to ask questions? Are you going to try to negotiate and wonder about, well, I have all of these plans going on, Lord. I don't know if you understand, but I-70 is a pretty big stretch. Um, it's also really cold and icy right now, and people don't really drive so slowly on that road. I, don't, I need to know how long I'm going to be gone. I have all these things I have to take care of. Where am I going? Who am I supposed to meet? What am I supposed to do? When I'm reading this, I have all of these questions that come up. But what is it that he does? He, we see that he gets up in verse 27, and he arose and went. Kind of an incredible act of obedience. It seems small and it seems simple, but Philip is told to get up and go. He gets up and he goes. No questions. Just obeys. In verse 27, And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of Ethiopians, 
who had charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for worship. So he gets up and he goes and behold, a man of Ethiopia. There's this, this Ethiopian man that he's going to see. Keep in mind that when he got up to leave, he had no idea what it is that's going to be before him. He has absolutely no idea. All he knows is that he is a willing servant, willing to obey his master. So Philip gets up and he goes and he's going to see this man. And we look at this and we're seeing, um, if you're familiar with the story, we, we know that he's going to evangelize, he's going to preach, he's going to share the scripture with this person And it's an interesting story just in the fact that, that he's just told to get up and go, but you see how prepared he is. He's confident as he's getting ready to go. Lord, I will get up and I will go and do whatever it is that you want. I've been prepared for this. Again, Philip was an evangelist. So anybody asking him about things of the Lord or opening up the scripture, he is certainly prepared for it. Um, this, he had just finished preaching in Samaria. He had been preaching in all of these other regions. And one of the reasons I love this story so much is that it's a very good reminder that, that God chooses to use human instruments to accomplish his purpose. And a lot of times it's easy for me to kind of want to sit back and say, well, well God's going to do what God's going to do. Um, I can kind of sit back and I can, I can watch. I may not necessarily have to be active. God has, is so powerful. God is so great. He can do everything on his own. He doesn't need me. But any, look at biblical history. We see how often God is using human instruments to accomplish his purpose. And it's not because he had to. It's not because God has to have our help. But he chose for us to help. He chose us to do these things. Look at Peter on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. Peter gets up. He's a willing servant. Knows what his job is. Knows what the Lord wants him to do. And he's preaching. And 3,000 come to salvation because of Peter preaching the word of God. The gospel is preached again in chapter 4, and 5,000 more are saved. The gospel continues to be preached by Stephen. Continue all the way down through the rest of the New Testament. How often do we see God's people being used as instruments? It's an incredible reminder for me that I am merely an instrument for God to accomplish His purpose, not my own purpose, but his purpose. When we see Peter preaching, he's not talking about himself and all of his history and all the great things that he has done, but he's simply preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel. And we see in the New Testament knowing nothing other than to preach Christ and him crucified. We see everything that is going on. We see these people stepping out, being bold, and continuing to preach the gospel. And it's an incredible reminder as we continue through the story that God has called his people to spread the gospel. He has called his people, which is all of us here who have come to know Christ, to share and to spread the gospel. It is our responsibility to share that. Where would we be if God's people didn't share the gospel? A little bit of, uh, of context with, in verse 27, talking about this Ethiopian eunuch, um, Ethiopia, again, consisted of everything south of Egypt. Um, the name Candace here is not necessarily a proper name. It's kind of more like Pharaoh. Um, so this idea um, of, of a ruler over this place, the king of Ethiopia was a venerated king. It was kind of a, a divine king. So the Ethiopians viewed this as a person that couldn't be concerned with day-to-day -day affairs, with secular uh, leadership. 
So basically, he just kind of sat back and didn't do anything. And this, this woman, this queen mother, Candace, more like a pharaoh, was in control of all the day-to-day, ran the whole kingdom, did everything. Um, kind of sounds like, like me when football's on. Sit back, queen mother goes ahead, and she does a lot of stuff, and probably yells at me a little bit. Um, but you get this idea of, of the queen mother, this person, this Candace, this pharaoh, controlling all of the affairs. And then we come to this, to this person of the eunuch, a person who was castrated, something that, that God looks down, um, down with a little bit of uh, frustration. He looks and, he's, and sees this person. Um, this person is the CFO. You know that a person is going to be important if they let them control the money, right? Uh, you don't put somebody you don't trust, someone that isn't important, someone that isn't in a leadership position in control of the money. If you control the money, you basically control everything. So this Ethiopian eunuch was the CFO. He controlled all of the finances and was in control of the treasury for this kingdom. But what is it that we see him doing? So this person with his pagan background, we see him at the end of verse 27, it says, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. That kind of sticks out as a little odd that an Ethiopian would be coming to Jerusalem to worship. Again, they, they worship these pagan gods, believing that their venerated king is a child of the sun, S-U-N. So a child of the sun, this, this venerated king that couldn't be concerned with anything. Why is it that a eunuch who served in the king's harem would be traveling to Jerusalem to worship? There's a lot of different ideas for this. Some believe that maybe he was a proselyte, um, a Gentile who had taken the law upon himself and, and fallen to Judaism. But we see him searching Right? We see this idea of a eunuch going out and searching. This was no simple trip. I forget the number of miles that he had been traveling up to this point to get to Jerusalem, but it is a very, very long distance from this Ethiopian kingdom to get all the way to Jerusalem. But he's going to worship. He was obviously um, unsatisfied with what he found worshiping his pagan gods. He was obviously, um, we're going to see, unsatisfied with what it was that what he found in Judaism. He had this hunger to know the Lord. He's traveling to Jerusalem to worship. It says in verse 28 as well, he was returning and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. So in verse 28, we see this Ethiopian eunuch reading the prophet Isaiah, reading the scripture. And what we're going to see is he's not just reading any scripture, not just any verse, but reading in Isaiah chapter 53, which if you had to kind of pick like the clearest gospel message in the Old Testament, that's on your short list. Prophet Isaiah is basically the gospel writer of the Old Testament. Again, this is pretty much all of the scripture that they had was Old Testament. They didn't have Paul's letters because, again, this was in the time where Paul was Saul and was trying to kill the Christians, right? So if Paul had written it, if Saul or Paul had written anything at this time, they weren't necessarily going to be trying to read it. Um, it's a, kind of an important thing to understand in the context. So Isaiah chapter 53, it's something that's familiar to a lot of us. But we see him reading Isaiah the prophet. Verse 29, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. So Philip is walking. He's not totally sure why it is that he's out there, but he's told um, to go, and he goes, and then he sees this man, and then he sees this man in a chariot, and the Lord says, go up into the chariot. God, that's not my chariot. 
Do I have to like knock? Is there other doors? Is it how is it that I'm supposed to get in here? God, I, I don't understand what I don't know this person. Isn't this a little bit awkward? I had all of these plans. This man is searching. He's seeking out God. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah chapter 53 of all chapters. Verse 30, And Philip ran thither unto him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? So he's drawing closer. Philip is prepared to go up in this chariot. And again, what is it that he does? He runs to him. Think about that. That's an interesting detail. He runs up to him. Philip isn't just sauntering over there, reluctant, unwilling to engage in conversation. The Holy Spirit, the angel of the Lord, had called him to walk and to travel this way. The Spirit had brought this Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot to that specific place. He had, the Spirit led that man to be reading Isaiah, to be reading Isaiah 53. Philip draws near. He hears him reading. At this time, a lot of people would be reading out loud. He's, drawing, he's going to be drawing near to him, and he runs to him with boldness. If there was one thing that you could characterize the early church with, it would be boldness, wouldn't it? Something that I think often we, we forget that we, we tend to lack um, especially within American Christianity, we lack the boldness. We say um, there's an opportunity for, for a spiritual conversation to share the gospel even in the grocery store. And our concern is, well, I don't know, maybe they have to be home soon. Or they didn't come here to hear the word of God. Maybe they just came here to shop. And I'm guilty of this myself of saying, well, maybe I'm just here to shop. I just want to get my fruits and veggies or my lucky charms and go home. Guys, like how I snuck in fruits and veggies to make it better. <laughs> just in case my parents hear this. But, but we all kind of have gone through that of, oh, there's a really big, there's an open door here for a conversation, but, but I have to be somewhere at 4 o'clock. Or I have to go and do this. I'm just really tired. I don't really know if I can, if I can share the gospel right now. We, we come up with all these excuses because it wasn't planned, right? We like to plan. A lot of, a lot of you are really good at planning. You're big planners. Um, part of the reason I'm not a big planner is probably just because I'm lazy. I don't think it's just because I like to be spontaneous. I think it's just the laziness part. So if it's not part of my plan, I can deal with it. But, but look at Philip. Look at this example. He, I don't know what it is that he was doing right at this exact moment that the angel Lord comes and speaks to him. But he says, get up and go. And Philip says, yep, going to go. Don't know where. Just going for a walk. And he comes to this situation, this divine encounter, to be able to see this man, this Ethiopian, who was, very, was going to be very looked down upon by the Jews, sees him. Again, he had just finished preaching in Samaria. So he's, he's, he's on fire right now, right? He's preaching, he's sharing the word. He goes and he gets closer, and he hears this, this man reading the prophet Isaiah, and he, he's familiar with these, these verses. He knows the scriptures, right? Philip knows what it is that he's reading. So what is it that we see him say in verse 30? At the end, understandest thou what thou readest? Hey, do you, do you understand what you're reading? Like, do you understand it? That's incredible because he's going with this boldness. He runs up to him. You can almost sense this excitement of, that guy is reading scripture. I'm going to run up to him. I'm going to make sure that he understands what he's reading. Because if he's reading it and has no idea what it is that it says... 
then what's the point? He needs someone to help him. Verse 31, how can I except some, some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Do we always assume that when someone's reading scripture, do we assume that they always understand it? Do we assume that, well, because they have a Bible out, one, they're already a believer, two, they understand everything, and three, they have no questions, and I have nothing to offer them? You would assume that walking around in this, this desert place, that a man in a chariot, reading aloud the scriptures, should have some understanding, but Philip, not willing to take a chance with this, comes out and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he responds with, how can I? How can I understand unless someone guides me? Think about it. At this point, this man has no one to guide him. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit bringing him along, illuminating the Scripture. He doesn't have other people from his community to be able to share with him. So what does he do? He invites Philip into his chariot so that he can actually explain it to him. You thought Philip was going to be excited before. Well, now Philip actually knows he has a chance to explain the Scriptures to this person. Verse 32, the place of the scripture which he read was this. And these are quotations from Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. That's an, that's an important portion of scripture for this Ethiopian eunuch to understand. Because what is it that he's talking about? What is it that these verses are that he's reading aloud? What is it that he's trying to understand? He's reading this. He doesn't know what it is. He says, how can I understand unless someone guides me? Verse 34, and the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man. So he's reading this. We see this portion. We see Isaiah writing this in chapter 53, verses 6 through 8. And the eunuch says to Philip, basically reads it and says, so I know what this says. Don't know what it means. Is he talking about himself or some other man? How do we see Philip's response? And this should be a response that, that each and every one of us, when we're sharing the gospel with someone, if we're sharing Christ, this is always where we begin. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, what? Jesus. Starting with the same scripture. He doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not really familiar with that. I don't really know much of Isaiah. Um, do you have any... Um, scrolls with maybe Jeremiah or Ezekiel. He's so familiar with the scripture because you know Philip had such a longing to understand who God is, such a longing for the scriptures. And so in answering his question, he begins in the same passage, continuing with the same scroll that he has, beginning in the same scripture, preached unto him Jesus. He says, you know what? Those verses that you're reading, everything that you see Isaiah talking about, He's not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus. And he begins to preach to him the things about Jesus. But everything that Philip is saying, it's starting with the scriptures. There is incredible power in the scriptures for salvation. 
incredible power. Notice that Philip doesn't say, well, those are good verses and we'll get to that at some point, but let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you my experience. He doesn't just go into this um, large exposition about his own testimony. He doesn't give an autobiography. And again, please hear me say, testimonies are not bad. Telling about your life experiences are not bad. But what is the foundation of our sharing Christ? He starts with the scriptures. And I was always told that when you're starting a conversation with somebody, um, you're starting a spiritual conversation, it was important to start with your testimony because you wanted to kind of identify with the person. Well, we look at this scenario and we see it a lot even with Christ. What does Christ do? Starts quoting scripture. Anytime someone is sharing the gospel in the Bible, you see them beginning with scripture and not themselves. Because what is at the very core of the gospel? It is God, it is Christ, it is the scriptures, it is salvation, and it's not me. And I think that's an incredibly important part because a lot of times we can kind of get caught and say, well, I don't really want to get bogged down with the scriptures. I, I, I want to share Christ, but I don't want to get bogged down with the scriptures. I don't want to have, ever, have people looking and saying, well, I'm not really concerned as much with the scriptures. I don't really want to read all of it. I don't want to be weighed down by it. And we go into all these things and we have all these excuses for starting with something else outside of the scriptures. But we have to start with the scripture. There's nothing else. There's no other starting place. Um, I think when we truly understand what the word of God is, what the Bible is, I think we'll have a better understanding of why we have to start with it. These aren't just good ideas. It's not just good morals. It's the very word of God from his lips. God breathed. This word became Christ in the flesh. Do we, like When we talk about the word became flesh in Christ, our literal scriptures became flesh, and that was Christ. Anything that he said, anything that we talked about in the scriptures, he spoke about concerning and testifying to him. Don't ever let someone tell you you shouldn't start with the scriptures when you're trying to evangelize, when you're trying to share Christ with someone, when you're having a conversation. Always start with the scriptures. And if a person doesn't want to get bogged down by it, then they're not really concerned with salvation in the first place. If they're not concerned with the scripture, yet moving in their heart, because the Holy Spirit will move them to the scriptures every single time. The Holy Spirit will never move a person seeking salvation towards your personal story because your story is nothing apart from Christ, apart from the cross. What is it we see, Paul? We see all these letters of saying, I desire to know nothing and to preach nothing among them except for Christ and him crucified. We see him giving his resume. Um, and Pastor Ben had gone through this um, within the last few weeks, giving this incredible resume. But what does he say at the end? It means nothing. It's dung. Very strong language there when you go to the Greek, too. But understand, he doesn't, there's no sense of resume here. Philip is entering into this conversation and in beginning with the same scripture preached unto him, Jesus. Because all of scripture testifies to Jesus. Everything in Isaiah, all of the prophecies that Isaiah is writing about, it's talking about the person of Jesus. So when you are engaging in a conversation, please start with the scriptures. Don't start anywhere else. It's also a lot better for, for the word of God to be speaking rather than yourself. I'm not clever enough. I'm not smart enough. 
I can't offer the words that give life. I don't have the words of salvation. When Jesus would speak, we'd see people seeing him and saying, he speaks the words of life. He has words of salvation. He's giving life. So when we talk about this idea of not wanting to get bogged down in the word of God, absolutely get bogged down in it. Have those conversations. If your conversation is going to consist of primarily one thing, wouldn't you rather it be looking at the scriptures rather than just telling about your own story? The story of Jesus is so much better than your story or my story. So we see him sharing the word with him. We see him opening up in the same scriptures, opening up with these verses from Isaiah, beginning to preach Jesus from there. And again, at the time, and and even some now, the Jews believed themselves to be this suffering servant that was talked about in Isaiah 53. They believed that they were the ones, because they were suffering much of their own doing, they believed that they were the ones that this prophecy was talking about. They believed themselves to be the suffering servant. Others had believed it that Isaiah was talking about himself. Others believed it was about Jeremiah. And all along the way, they continued to miss the point that Isaiah 53 was one of the best biographies of Jesus that was written at this time. It's not about Israel. It's not about the Jews. It's not about Isaiah. It's not about Jeremiah. It's not about anything else. It's about Jesus. And Philip was prepared to share that message with him. Again, he had sat under the apostles, right? The apostles and and the early church leaders had appointed him to a position to minister. He had been going out, preaching the gospel in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and now we see him preaching to the, the gospel to a person from the uttermost part of the earth. Again, referencing back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Each and every part of it being fulfilled. The gospel spreading throughout the regions. So Philip is prepared. He had been prepared for this teaching because he sat under the apostles. He was willing. And in verse 36, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. Again, where are they at? They're on a desert road right now. If you know anything about deserts, I'm sure you guys know a lot more about deserts than I do. I don't think water is everywhere. Came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? What another incredible opportunity. Again, if I'm Philip, you're, you're jumping up and down. He's almost doing like I don't, a potty dance, basically, of a kid, right? He's moving around. He's jumping. He's excited. It's incredible. He's coming to water, and the eunuch says, here is water. What stops me from being baptized? Basically saying, please don't tell me there's anything that can stop me from being baptized. So not only did Philip have the opportunity to go and to, to humbly obey the Lord, now he's preaching and sharing Christ with this person. This person is understanding and he's receiving Christ, and now he's going to be able to teach him baptism. Verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's powerful. What keeps me from being baptized? Well, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So what does he do? The unit comes, he confesses, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. What an incredible story. 
Philip had probably all these plans for the day, all these things that he had to do, all these things that he wanted to do, all of this other stuff to take care of. Angel of the Lord comes and says, Philip, get up and go. Just go down this road. And he does. He comes to a man, an Ethiopian man, randomly traveling down this desert road heading to Gaza. Like, the situation couldn't be less probable. He goes up to this chariot. He hears him reading from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, reading about the suffering servant. And he's able to ask him, do you understand what you're reading? He responds, how can I understand if, if I don't have anyone to guide me? Conversation continues. He opens up the scripture, beginning the same scripture, preaches unto him Jesus. They continue on their way. They come to a certain water. They see this big open water, and the eunuch says, what keeps me from being baptized? He says, you have to confess that Jesus Christ is, is the Son of God. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So they get out and they're baptized. Verse 39, And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. I love verse 39 because I also like science fiction stuff. But verse 39 isn't some kind of like science fiction. This is miraculous confirmation that there was, a, there was a true encounter with the Lord. Verse 39, when they come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. So imagine this scene. You've just come to salvation. You're being baptized by Philip. Philip is baptizing the eunuch. And when he comes up out of the water, where's Philip? Gone. Philip's not there. Where is Philip? Someone find Philip, because he is gone. Caught him away so that the eunuch saw him no more. I was asking some of the men if there's a better word or a better way to describe this other than like teleporting or like time travel. Um, but he's just gone. We're going to find him here in verse 40. So we found Philip. Um, but just an incredible, incredible thing that, that Philip is baptizing this eunuch and as he comes up out of the water, he's gone. And what does it say at the end of 39? The eunuch's response, he went on his way rejoicing. He wasn't concerned about Philip. Philip is gone. That's great. I'm happy the guy came, right? But he had just been, he had just received the word of the Lord. He had just been saved. He had just been baptized, entering into union with Christ. He was not concerned about where Philip was. He wasn't concerned about anything else. He went on his way rejoicing. And this is where we can get back to um, Pastor Ben's study a couple weeks ago talking about rejoicing in the Lord, this idea, this joy that we can have in Christ, that the only way we can truly have joy is in Christ. So Philip has taken away this confirmation for the eunuch that he had just encountered God, that he had truly met him, that it wasn't all some fiction. Verse 40, but Philip was found at Azatos, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So Philip is found in this city, about 20 miles north of Gaza. So he had traveled at least 20 miles. And he was found preaching in all the cities. This is an incredible story. There, there's so much here that we can look to. We can look at this and we can obviously have the encouragement and say, we need to be out there. We need to be sharing. Philip was, yes, he was an evangelist. But every believer is called to be an evangelist. Every believer is called to be a disciple. 
Every believer is called to disciple someone else. Philip received this call from the Lord, and he went and he obeyed willingly. And again, I'll keep coming back to this, but Philip could have had all of these plans for the day, but he was not willing to pass this up. And and it's interesting because as I look about all the times that I may have missed an opportunity to share Christ because I had plans, or because I had something going on at 6 o'clock, or because the Vikings may have finally made it to the playoffs, or whatever the situation is, all of these things that can come up and we can say, yeah, I could have a conversation, but this thing's going on. I don't really know. And, and we, we look at this, this situation, and we can look at it and say, well, you know, he had an angel of the Lord come and speak to him, so maybe that's a little bit different. Um, so that's how he knew that it was going to be a divine encounter. Um, but what is it that God has called us to do? He has called us to share the gospel. What's funny about it is um, Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, actually in one of his writings said that this eunuch became a missionary. Um, This this wasn't just just a person that received the word of God then and just kind of sat back, but he himself then would become a missionary. And I'll bet that he did become a missionary because imagine the circumstance. Imagine what effect that would have on your life. Just wandering in a chariot, reading the scripture, searching for the Lord, having no idea what it is that you're reading, and randomly, some man named Philip comes along and is able to explain to you the person of Jesus Christ, and you receive him at that time. Then he baptizes you, and you come up out of the water, and he is gone. The things that we learn, the things that we study, the, the teaching that we sit under is not meant for us just to hold for, as if to be a bucket, just to be filled and say, hey, my bucket is full. That's great. I'm done. Philip had sat under the apostles' teaching. He had learned a lot, but he didn't just sit back. He continued to go out, continued to preach. Again, he finishes preaching and sharing Christ with this person, and he's taken up, and again in verse 40, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Philip continued to go along city to city to city, preaching Christ to everybody that he could find. He wasn't just a bucket looking to be filled. He would fill himself up and pour himself out. And so as we continue to to study and as we look at this, continuing to see the power of Scripture to save, this person had one small portion of Scripture explained to him, talking about the person of Jesus Christ, the Spirit leading him to that particular Scripture, the Spirit leading Philip, this willing servant, to go and to meet him on this place, the power of Scripture to bring salvation. And again, God using a human instrument to further and to accomplish his purpose. Any one of us could be like Philip. Any one of us could be this Ethiopian eunuch searching for God. And it takes a person to come along and say, do you understand what you're reading? Do you know who Christ is? Do you know that Christ is the Son of God who came and he died? He was buried. But he's also risen and coming again. He's not, he did not stay dead. Giving this whole gospel picture Any one of us could be in those situations. Philip was a willing servant, willing to share. And I want to encourage us, um, not just because I think it's a good idea or it's it's a good moral or because um, Philip did it, but because God has called and commanded us to share the gospel. And again, look in in chapter 1, verse 8. Judea, Samaria, 
uttermost ends of the earth. That doesn't just mean to Ethiopia. Uttermost ends, that's everywhere. Incredible power of Scripture to save. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for, for your word. We thank you that, that you've given it to us and that, that you've made it clear to us. We thank you for allowing us a, a way to continue to study your word, a way to look at it and to be able to meditate on it and to be able to see you clearly. Father, we thank you for um, the example here just of Philip in this one situation of of a willing servant, willing to obey you and obey any command, willing to be bold and to run up to a man in a chariot that he doesn't know. And he hears him reading scripture and, and being willing to ask, do you understand what you're reading? Because Philip knew how important it was that each and every person he encountered had received the gospel of your son. Father, as we continue throughout this week and just continuing through our lives, I pray that you would um, empower each and every one of us with the boldness to be able to do the same, to be able to step out, um, forgetting our plans or our preferences and maybe even get past a little bit of discomfort, but to be willing to be bold to proclaim you in any situation to any person, to any people group, regardless of situation, but to be able to boldly step out and beginning in the scriptures, preach about your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for his atoning work on the cross. We thank you that, that through him we can be made right with you. We thank you for the salvation that it is that you offer. Father, we know that we know that we are so undeserving of, of salvation. We know that it is only by your grace and through your own work. God, help us to continue to always remember that, that the message of the gospel has absolutely nothing to do with our own work or our own um, abilities, but it's only through grace and through the work of your Son. And Father, I thank you that as we're able to study this morning, that we're able to see that we can begin in the Scriptures because the Scriptures have the power to bring salvation. And Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and for your grace, and we're thankful for salvation this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.